0: Blog Talk radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart, the most listened to internet radio show in the nonprofit sector, dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to modern day fundraising success, and practical advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to the use of social media and how to make your nonprofit green. Guests on The Nonprofit Coach are leaders in their field who share tips and trade secrets for nonprofit management and fundraising success. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. This is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Click on Radio. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart.
1: And welcome here to the latest edition of The Nonprofit Coach. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, We've got a terrific show for you, and I'm just looking to bring that music down. Uh, And uh, so our page two expert today is Simone Zuaio. I'll introduce her in just a few moments. Uh, We're going to uh, get started uh, with page one news. As the announcer mentioned, this is a live call-in show, so feel free to call 347-324-3080. You can also join us over in the chat room. I see some folks over there, so you can ask questions there. Or you can email me your questions at tedhart at tedhart.com. With that, we're going to run right over to page one news. First up here on page one news comes to us from the Chronicle of Philanthropy. Chronicle of Philanthropy is reporting uh, the latest 2015 benchmark study by the marketing firm M&R. Uh, they are reporting that online revenue at nonprofit organizations increased 13%. Uh, from 2013 to 2014, a change attributable to the number, not necessarily the size, of online gifts. This is becoming uh, much more ubiquitous across uh, the uh, nonprofit sector. Uh, nonprofits uh, participating in this study uh, are showing increases in the United States, Canada, Australia, and South Africa. Um, in this uh, study, you'll also see the uh, the importance. Of maintaining your email lists, uh, participants in the study had their email list growing by 11 percent, a smaller rate than previous years, but having more uh, sticking to um, to the lists, uh, less declines um, in those lists. So maintaining the relationship again, as we have said, uh, that online fundraising is all about relationships. It's all about community uh, and communications. It's not a new form of fundraising. It's just a new set of tools. Uh, so you can uh, read all about that over in the Chronicle of Philanthropy. Uh, next up here on page one news, George Hamilton is here with us. Uh, he is here for this month's CFRE Minute. George, welcome back here to the Nonprofit Coach.
2: Oh, well, thanks very much, Ted. I'm thrilled to be here in Eva's stead. Um, she's traveling extensively this month representing CFRE certification and CFRE International at at some well, we conferences that, uh, in Brazil and and you know uh New Zealand and Germany so she's she's all over the globe representing CFRA this month.
1: May <laughs> seems to be one of those uh very uh jam packed months for uh, conferences. I know I've got two weeks of of travel uh coming up uh New York, uh Las Vegas, Toronto, uh, back to New York, San Francisco, so uh I've got that all in two weeks at the end of the month. So it's a it's a busy month. But things are busy over at C F R E as well, so why don't you bring us up to date uh with the latest with uh this month's C F R E Minute?
2: Sure thing. Um well the first the first thing is that the uh call for nominations for the uh C F R E International Board of Directors is, is currently open. Um and for those who don't know, the CFRE board is made up of 10 CFRE-certified fundraisers plus one public member. Um, in 2015, there are four CFRE-certified board member positions that will be up for election, um, with two currently sitting members eligible to continue their service for another term. Um, and if folks are interested in, in presenting uh, a nomination of a currently certified CFRE, um, those nominations would be due by 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time in the U.S. on May the 25th, and more information can be found on the CFRE uh, homepage under the Latest News section. Um, so, again, the, the open call for board nominations runs through the 25th of May. Uh, the other exciting thing is the, the CFRE growth and certification numbers Uh, for the first testing window of this year. Um, In total, 134 new CFREs were certified in the first testing window of 2015. Um, That's up 26% from that same window in 2014 and up 31% um, from 2013 in test window one. And the other exciting thing is that it? Really looks like um, that expansion of available testing centers around the globe that we talked about before on the show, um, in relation to our new partnership with with View is also paying off. Um, there were 28 international certifications awarded in in the uh, first testing window this year. That's up 56 percent from la- from last year and 87 percent from 2013. And you know, we we actually saw some some certifications from places that really were underserved with our Former testing partner. Um, there's a new CFRE certified in Bermuda, one in Croatia just this uh, past window, and two in South Africa. In addition to the to the more common international um, sites such as Canada or or Australia. So that's all very exciting news, and and really shows that 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 partnership with Pearson Vue is going to really help expand the the credential, um, not just in North America but also around the world.
1: As we talked before, that just expands the opportunities for people to uh take the tests um in a common format uh in so many
2: more uh testing sites, it just puts it within reach. Exactly. Uh, Bermuda did not have a testing site at all accessible to them um until this year with, with Pearson View. Um in terms of Croatia and and South Korea, um massively ex- expanded testing sites, you know, going from, from one or two up into the into the, you know, Dozen plus in the in those countries um, makes it a much more accessible credential for folks.
1: George, how many uh, total people are
2: now certified with CFRE? Um, as of the close of this window, we're over 5,400. Um, actually, I think we're over 5,500. So we're up we're up a little bit even from the beginning of the year. That's so perfect. And how does that yeah. is that an
1: all time high or is that uh, Tracking where you would expect it to be this time of year.
2: It's it's tracking right right where we would hope it would be. Um, we've got you know aggressive growth um, forecast in terms of our our goals, um, and we're on track with that. Um, so through the first quarter, um, and in fact quarters quarters two and three and four are actually our bigger bigger quarters each year in terms of CFRE certification. So it was very it was very rewarding and encouraging to see. Um, that number go up for for new certifications for the first period of the year.
1: I know you have a lot of new content available on your website. How has all of that been received, and is that drawing more attention to CFRE?
2: Um, i feel like th- i feel like it definitely is and in particular it's it's engaging current CFREs and and people who currently have applications um in process it's engaging them with cfre on a much more regular basis um we're creating content on the website we we you know we've had we've had the uh our e-newsletter, uh, newsletter that is a weekly newsletter, it's been going out since last fall, um, and we're really seeing more people engaging with stories on that and linking back through to our website, um, which we're able to, you know, we're able to track through for Google Analytics. Um, so we're we're definitely seeing a lot of in- increased engagement um, between CFRE International and and our certificates and applicants um, through through the stories and the information that we're sharing with them um, as a resource.
3: Well,
1: congratulations on the continued growth of CFRE and the growth around the world uh, to truly being uh, that global baseline certification uh, for fundraisers, of course, here on the Nonprofit Coach. to encourage all of our listeners to go to CFRE.org, learn what the qualifications are, and begin tracking your progress uh, towards either uh, becoming CFRE or certainly making sure that you stay renewed and up-to-date. Uh, with your CFRE certification. George Hamilton, thank you for this month's uh, CFRE Minute. We look forward uh, to a representative of CFRE being with us again next month. All right. Thanks very much, Ted. Much appreciated. Take care. Um, We have uh, such a big show and so many things that we want to talk to Simone Gioio about today. We are now going to head right on over to page two. In her official bio, Simone Joyeux says she's described as one of the most thoughtful, inspirational, and provocative leaders in the philanthropic sector. I can attest to that. Uh, So it's not just a line. It is absolutely the professional that we have as our page two expert today. A consultant specializing in fund development, strategic planning, and board development, Simone guides countless organizations and professionals through their consulting and coaching, teaching, and writing uh, she works with all types and sizes of nonprofits, speaks at conferences worldwide. Uh, she is helpful to organizations that are both large and small and teaches in the graduate program for philanthropy at St. Mary's University in Minnesota. Her books, Keep Your Donors, Strategic Fund Development, and Firing Lousy Board Members, all receive rave reviews. Simone has also contributed to several other books She writes for the nonprofit quarterly, blogs weekly at Simone Uncensored, and publishes a monthly e-newsletter. As a volunteer, Simone founded the Women's Fund of Rhode Island, a social justice organization. She regularly serves on boards. Currently, she chairs the advisory board of the Center for Sustainable Philanthropy. Uh, in, at Plymouth University in the UK, which we're going to be talking a little bit about today, and she chairs the Board of Directors of Planned Parenthood of the southern New England. Simone and her life partner have bequeathed their entire estate to charity, uh, very admirable, and you can find out more information about her at SimoneJoyot.com, but more importantly, she is here with us right now, and welcome here back to the nonprofit coach, Simone Joyot.
4: Well, hi, Ted. It's fun to be here again. I'm looking out my big windows, and uh, it's actually spring in Rhode Island, which is, you know, relatively recent since there was some snow and a big pile left in um, April, like, 10th. But now it's, like, all spring.
1: Well, I was looking at the schedule of uh, the number of very very highly rated uh, times that you've been here on the Nonprofit Coach, and it seems like we can say if it's springtime, it must be Simone on the uh, nonprofit coach This is about the time of year uh, that you come to uh, to, to join us. Um, so I want to hear what's new, and one of the things uh, that's new for you and uh, very very interesting uh, is your service with the Center for Sustainable Philanthropy at, at uh, Plymouth University in the UK, founded by Adrian Sargent. Um, talk to us more about your service as chair. Of the advisory board. So bring us up to date. This is big news.
4: Well, so first, I'm just really excited about this center. And just as a little aside, you ought to get Adrian on sometime to uh, the show to talk about it at length.
1: Absolutely.
4: So it's uh, probably, I suppose, the newest center on philanthropy. You know, we have a lot of wonderful centers on philanthropy, you know, think about the Lilly School of Philanthropy, which started out as a center at um, Indiana University in Indianapolis. This one that uh, Adrian Sargent has founded is interesting to me for a couple reasons, and in no particular order. One, I've long been concerned about the lack of, what shall we say, Ted, academic rigor, academic research in the fundraising profession. We are a group of wonderful, admirable practitioners, and we've been passing things down. But to really be considered a profession in the world, and certainly in uh, North America, is to be able to say, we have conducted rigorous academic research that shows that, for example, systems thinking is a major key component of good fundraising. Now, Adrian Sargent and Jen Chang did that research several years ago, and they have a report called Great Fundraising, and it proves that what you and I may have thought, Ted, about how systems thinking is important even in fundraising, well, it proves it is. So that's what this new center is working on. It's looking at to create the bridge, the link between what academic research tells us, like in psychology, sociology, et cetera, and then create the bridge that says, ah, this is how to use it in fundraising. So I'm really thrilled about that. The other thing that it is really focused on is growing philanthropy. Now, I know know, we all talk about growing philanthropy, but they're talking about it in terms of if we look at the United States and the what is it, Ted? Maybe forty years or forty plus years of the Giving USA study. Well, you right, and I both right. know, and anybody who reads that study knows that charitable giving as a percent of GDP in the United States has never varied between one and point eight to two point one percent. So I want a bigger percentage, and that's why the Center is called for Sustainable Philanthropy, and it's specifically about knowing enough about how to do this that we can actually grow philanthropy so that it's no longer two point one percent of US GDP, it's five percent, ten percent. So that's that's what's going on. Um and I'm also excited because so Adrian, early a, on,
1: we're curious. Yeah. I just wanted to ask yeah. um early on, and obviously the research is just starting and this is this is very exciting because right. uh, you know across the board to to grow the sector and to really understand what those gears and moving pieces are uh, to making it truly sustainable. What do we know so far? And I guess more importantly, what do we not know?
4: Well, so for example, interesting things we do not know. You know how we keep talking about relationship building and the donor journey and all of that sort of stuff? Right. You know, like that's central to us. Well, we don't actually know, you know, how it does or doesn't work. I mean, we know – what little things to do, sort of. But we don't actually know, like, why they work and how we could do them differently and how we could do different stuff still picking on the things that make it work, as in psychology or whatever. So that's actually one of the pieces of research that has just started by the Center. And I'm not sure when it will be available, but it's... it's, just recently started. So they're going to do a whole lot, obviously, of um, telling us all when these things come out. So that's a major uh, piece, Um, and that's just been launched. Uh, Other things that we don't know, and I'm not even saying these are things that the center will research, but they're just, as I think about it in my brain, things we don't know. Mm. Um, You know how we recognize donors by gift size? You know, and do those right. things. We don't actually know if that works or why it works. I mean, we can suspect, and we can say, "Well, but everybody does it, so it must work." So, I, you know, I have no idea if the center would ever um, research that, but that could be interesting to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, another piece of we, research that's just fear, been... yeah, go ahead. I,
1: I'm wondering. I'm wondering if 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 we sort of fear that there are no norms that that it is a truly individual process of philanthropy. Um or or do we have enough empirical evidence to say there are some norms, we just don't know exactly what they are?
4: I I think actually from a practitioner point of view and from when you think about how many years you know, I don't know that we need to mention them, Ted, the years you and I've been in this field.
1: <laughs> um a few. A few
4: right that uh we've been passing on to each other what works, and it does work, but in many cases, we don't know why it works, and if we knew the why, then that gives us more power to adjust things, because we would know the why, so as we adjusted, the why would still be there. We would adjust it within those parameters, so to me, that's what's so exciting about this. You know, we what we do is we keep doing continuing education, the training at conferences, all very important. But I frequently sit in the audience and I go, I thinking, why? <laughs> why did that work? Well, you know, so we know, it about, so,
1: so you know, we know that it works. We just don't know why that
4: right. it works. Right. We don't know why. And if we knew why, then we could keep replicating. You know, as opposed to. Well, it works, and so I think I'll tweak it. Oh, my gosh, look what happened when I tweaked it, because I didn't know why it worked the other way.
1: In the first place. Okay.
4: Precisely.
1: Well, that makes sense. So I, so the when did the center start? So the Center for Sustainable Philanthropy.
4: Right. So the first meeting of the advisory board was in – this is May, right? So it was in October of 2014. So it – Adrian had been starting it at Plymouth in 2014. Okay. So it's only just, you know, like getting up. There is, um, there, you can go to their website, which is, you know, Center for Philanthropy at Plymouth University in the UK, okay. and then it'll and will it'll pop up, and so you'll see who's on the board uh, of the advisory board. And I want to stress, it's an advisory board. You know, it's not the governing board. It's got a number of people from the U.K. It's got um, Matt Beam from the U.S., who is the CEO at Hartsook. And Bob Carter, the former chair of AFP, is um, from the U.S. There's um, people from... uh, Oxfam, the chief fundraiser there, uh, the new CEO at Resource Alliance is on the advisory board. We're still sort of evolving the advisory board um, and uh, sort of looking at who we need and that sort of thing. So uh, Jay Love from Bloomerang, the CEO and co-founder, is on. So another interesting piece of research to me is looking at Amy Eisenstein's um book where she talks about um, major gift fundraising for smaller organizations.
1: Yeah, we just had her so on the ten- show, and it was absolutely fascinating. Oh, cool. Absolutely fascinating.
4: Yeah, so, yeah. And I she encourage was telling you about to the go research.
1: To go to the, exactly. So I encourage everyone to go to the archives of uh, the nonprofit coach, yeah. uh, okay. and you can find it at tedhart.com. Yeah. Good so that's, that's
4: I'm that's why I'm excited about it is we have to be academically based as well as practitioner based. We've got to link the two, to, you know.
1: So, anyway, that's that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Just getting started. So you've got you've got research, and obviously being at uh, Plymouth, I'm guessing that this is going to be done on a global scale. Yes, yeah, yeah. So we're gonna uh, we're gonna change our focus just a little bit. We're gonna Mm -hmm. take a a quick break, and when uh, when we come back, um, I want you to focus on one of the areas that you are uh, such an expert on. Um, and that is boards of directors, the makeup of boards of directors. And you have mm-hmm. some interesting questions that you're asking um, about the role of CEOs, uh, um, uh, executive directors, and uh, and makeups of boards of directors. So I'm not going to do any more than that because I want our guests to okay. to hang in there. But one of the uh, very deep thinkers on this topic is, of course, uh, Simone Joyo, and we're going to be right back after this break. Get out your calendars and your pencils. I just want to uh, make note of next week's show. So here live on the nonprofit coach next Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern. Susan Schaefer uh, from Resource Partners and Bob Whitting, the executive director of Jovid. Uh, Foundation are going to be here, and their new book uh, is Nonprofit Board Service for Geniuses. Uh, So uh, this ties in a little bit into our next topic, Uh, but we will also have, that's our page two experts, uh, but we will also have our GuideStar minutes uh, here on uh, the Nonprofit Coach, and uh, Gabe Cohen will be here uh, with us from GuideStar. Next thing I want to uh, just share with you uh, before we go back to the uh, live show with Simone Gio, um is a little thoughtful information about how are you sending your email, and should you, in fact, be sending your email encrypted?
3: Have you ever wished you could take back an email you sent to the wrong person, or have that nagging feeling that your confidential message was forwarded without your consent? Do you sometimes email sensitive data even though you know most email is insecure? Well, we all have, because we're busy, and because in the world of email, there are no takebacks. Until now, introducing Virtue, the simple way to send and receive secure email with confidence. Virtue is easy to install and use, and it works with your favorite email programs like Gmail, Outlook, Yahoo, Mac Mail, and more. When you hit the Send Secure button, your email is encrypted before it leaves your computer or smartphone. And even better, you can revoke a message at any time. You decide whether a message can be forwarded by recipients. You can track where your message is forwarded and more. Download Virtue today and start sharing with confidence. Because everyone deserves digital privacy and security without hassle. Remember, our
0: podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart.
1: And we're back here live with uh, Simone Gioiaux. Uh, Simone Joyo is one of uh, the uh, foremost experts on a number of different topics. One of those uh, is uh, smart boards of directors, efficient and well-managed boards of directors. And I think you've got some uh, some evolving thoughts on this and some very specific areas. Uh, Simone, take it away.
4: Well, so I get this email about a month ago, Ted, from a colleague who She's sending me this email just because she wants to see if I might start jumping up and down screaming in the privacy of my own office. So the question of the topic that she sent me was, should nonprofit executive directors, CEOs, be the chair of their boards? And the premise apparently in my reading of this uh, thing she sent me was that since Executive directors kind of do everything anyway. They just may as well be the chair of the board. Well, I can only tell you that I jumped up and down ranting and raving. So here's my thinking on this. Yes, as I always say, the executive director needs to be very good at governance. The executive director needs to be so good at governance that she or he – can help the board understand governance because it's not like most board members go to school to learn about governance. That said, I believe that the board needs to be volunteers and the board chair needs to be a volunteer. And together, the board chair and the executive director Do a kind of a, what do we want to say, testing of each other, if you will, a balancing of, do we think this is actually governance work to talk about at this board meeting? What do you think, Ted, as the executive director? What do I think as the board chair? What angle of something is governance? I believe that the board chair and executive director should have – a strong enough relationship that they can actually disagree with each other as they help shape the board meetings. So I actually believe that the executive director cannot should not serve as the board chair and I actually have a had a client where the executive director at one point said to the board, "You are relying on me too heavily to do the governance as well as the management." You expect me to practically run the board meetings, and that is not acceptable. So that was the general, as I say, introduction. That uh, and the little ranting and raving that I did on the Simone, isn't there
1: on this on this premise that's put forward? And, and I know you're you're probably the best person to send sort of a provocative question like that too, uh, so it can be thoroughly vetted. Um, but it, don't you have to go to a much more basic level, and that is how would the executive director or CEO in this case then hire him or herself, evaluate him or herself? Uh, <laughs> I mean, well, so you. It, do I, we, don't <laughs> we go to a more basic level of this doesn't work even on its most basic level?
4: Yeah, I like that. I'll, I'll add that to the uh, article I eventually write. Yeah, I mean, when it and you it, can first...
1: quote me on that, Simone. You oh, I will.
4: <laughs> Absolutely.
1: <laughs> so when you think
4: about it from a most practical point of view, right, I mean, can't you just see it at the board meeting? So you're the executive director. So first you put on your board chair hat because you're chairing the meeting. So you call the meeting to order and you do a couple things, and then you take off your board chair hat. You put on your executive director hat because your board chair hat self just asked the executive director to make the report about what's going on in the Right. Well, I
1: think think this is, you know, the the title of your article could be Executive Director as Emperor because at that point, why do you need a board? You know, why do you need a board at that point? Because the whole notion of having a volunteer board, having that independent view, as much as, you know, board board members need to be trained and board members are, you know, as, as you just said, you know, board members are not born skilled, they are trained skilled. Um, and right. so like everything else, these are learned activities, but it, it is a group activity. I mean, the, the, the successfully right, right. run nonprofit, it, it, what I always say is a, a successfully run nonprofit is a team sport. Um, yeah, and as much absolutely. as you know, all of us have that nagging feeling that if I just did it myself, it would be far more uh, successful, the reality is that's probably not true, uh, right. that it is the interplay and it is the varying mm-hmm. uh, experiences and input that actually comes to a better resolution than just, hey, just leave it all to me.
4: Well, and it's it's this kind of checks and balances, right? So I think what the person was saying, who shouldn't the, you know just let the executive director be the board chair, is doing what I hear a lot of people when they talk about governance, they say we need a new governance model. I don't think we need a new governance model. What I think we need, and I don't think we need, you know, executive directors serving as board chairs, we just simply continue to refuse to do the work the proper way. And so when it doesn't work, like, gee, there's no one who's going to be the board chair or going to be good, and the executive director is the one that's doing all the the information anyway, so why doesn't he or she just be the board chair? It's like, no, what's wrong is you got the wrong board chair. What's wrong is your board doesn't understand group process. What's wrong is your executive director doesn't know how to enable a board chair to do what he or she is supposed to do. It's not being a puppet master, it's being a good enabler.
1: Well, and I, I, I think it's also, you know, part of what, what's lacking here is um you know, in the very question the executive director or CEO is admitting that they don't understand um nonprofit governance because The essence of the nonprofit is not the paid staff. The essence of the nonprofit is the volunteer community activity. It may grow into then hiring uh, professional staff because of the various nature of the work. But if you boil it all down and you say, what is the essence here? The staff Mm -hmm. goes and the board stays. Right.
4: Yeah. Well, it's just, as I say, I think there's this larger issue of when something isn't working – we decide. We sometimes decide. Oh, it's the model. It's the whatever. It's like, no, the plant in your front yard is dying due to lack of water. You didn't water it regularly. A different plant <laughs> is going to have the same problem.
1: Right. Well, so possibly, just, just but I, I think I think the plant analogy is is an interesting one, though, because. Um, It takes you to there are certain skill sets to look for in board members and certain plants will thrive in some areas and not in other areas, which means board members are not absolutely interchangeable and board members don't all have the same skill set. So finding the right fit for your garden or finding the right fit for your board is an equal sort of uh, task here. Um I want to keep us on schedule and you you've given me yeah. a lot of things to think about here. Um did I already address or did I need to ask you about something about your trip to London?
4: Oh, no. No, it was it was the Center for Philanthropy. The,
1: the Center for Sustainable Philanthropy, Philanthropy. That's what I <laughs> that I
4: thought was wh- wh- so Oh, which is wait, a but you're know outside
1: other- of London, but probably related, right? A bit outside.
4: Right. Yes. Yes, because the meetings were in London. What what's interesting though? What's interesting in London or in the UK? As well as uh, in France and several other countries, is is that board members are not expected to give a charitable gift.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, what do you think about so, that? Because I, I think I think that that we've had a certain viewpoint on that, and and that mm-hmm. seems to evolve.
4: Yeah. So it's I believe that one must be very careful to not ask others to do things one is not prepared to do oneself. So when you think about Mm -hmm. charities, when you think about nonprofit organizations, they're in the fundraising business. And I'm trying to envision myself, right, as a board member of a charity, going out and uh, asking other people to give a gift and realizing that I don't give a financial contribution, Sure, I give my time, but that doesn't pay the telephone bill.
1: Right, right, so right. To me, and why, why yeah. would someone else contribute to something that I don't exactly. think is worthy of my own support?
2: Exactly. You know, you can
1: take that a little bit further. I mean, one of the uh, somewhat controversial. Less now, three years in, but when I first started as CEO, uh, CAF America, where I currently uh, currently serve, um, I I took a look at this organization as a charitable organization, and one of the things right. that I built in. Uh, to a revised annual review um, is a component of everyone's annual review is community service. And Mm -hmm. my view is that as a nonprofit organization, how can we suggest that we understand nonprofit or charitable work if we ourselves as a staff do not commit ourselves on an annual basis To giving back in some way, that we're, we're, not, mm-hmm. we're not willing to give of ourselves, but yet we can tell everyone else that philanthropy is wonderful and everybody else should be engaged in philanthropy. Um, just do as I say, not as I do. And I don't think that's okay. And I think that's, that's the same as what you're saying about board members is, you know, yeah. here, here's what I've, I've often said, and you've heard me in some of my board training, is, is yeah. what I tell boards of directors is I start off by saying, I've got some good news for you. You do not have to make a philanthropic gift to this organization. And that automatically gets their attention because it's like, oh, great. I've been being beat up and being told that I have to make a contribution. And isn't this nice so this consultant comes in and validates the fact that I don't have to make a contribution. And so then I, I just say, the old, now all you have to do is pass a budget and put together and fund a budget That does not require philanthropic support. So if you can fund this place without philanthropic support, then in fact, you don't need to raise money. And if you don't need to raise money, then you don't need to give. But as soon as you adopt a budget that requires philanthropic dollars, you've done two things. One, as a board of directors, you've now committed yourself to meeting that budget. So you're going to be Uh part of that process. It doesn't become someone else's job to go raise that money. But you've now also committed yourself to setting an example. And by setting an example, it means that you give.
4: Precisely. Daryl Upsell, who's uh, from the U.K. but has been living in Spain for, I don't know, decades and is a big – as a consultant, he wrote a blog in 101 Fundraising, you know, that international blog. And it talks about – and he said, one of the things that North America has over the rest of of us in fundraising is they expect board members and staff, particularly like the fundraising staff and the CEO, to give gifts. And in, you know, whether it's whatever other country, that is not is at least in Western Europe, is not as common. It's certainly common in my experience in Australia New Zealand. But you've got to ask yourself, how can you work for this charity if you don't give a gift to this charity? And how can you work for this charity as a staff person and not give to other charities in addition to this one? I mean, don't you believe in philanthropy? Right. And the same thing goes for board members. I'm assuming board members are giving to multiple charities. And I don't care if it's $5. It's not about gift size. It's about participation.
1: Right. Well, so and what is, I what I say yeah. is if you're going to serve on this board of directors, the only thing that I'm asking is that the organization be in the top three. Yes. Um, right. So, you know, I'm, right. I'm not saying it's got to be bigger than your house of worship. I'm not saying it has to be right. bigger right. than your alma mater. But if you're serving here, then we should yeah. be in the top three. And, right, and because so you how decide. do you think we're
4: going to feel, right, when we see that you give everybody right. else more money than us? I mean, yeah, I think you, one you, of the
1: reasons... You love them yeah. better than us, right. <laughs> right,
4: exactly, exactly. So, yeah, um, when I was presenting in Paris a couple of years ago, it was the second time I would presented, and I was getting tired of hearing people say to me, well, that's not our culture or that that's not how we do things. Um, and so I sort of said, look, I'm just telling you at the start of this session, okay, don't tell me when I'm talking about fundraising that that's not the way you do it and you're never going to do it that way because I'm coming to you from North America and the United States where where I think the United States has all sorts of problems, but it just so happens that in North America, United States and Canada, we do a lot of personal face-to-face solicitation for big gifts whatever big is, and we believe that board members are supposed to give and staff to. I said, you need to get there. You need to, whether you're in Slovakia, France, the U.K., China, you need to get to that point. And you will someday because, you know.
1: Yes, and I agree with you, but I'm just wondering if this is is something that not tomorrow, but the Center for Sustainable Philanthropy might look at to say – We know this is true, we say this, you and I have said this forever, but is there a difference between the fundraising success of organizations where board members give and the fundraising success of board members who don't give? You know, I mean, we say this, we understand it, and the principle is true, but is there any empirical information that says, in fact, organizations have more sustainable philanthropy when board members are engaged and Uh, give and those that don't? I mean, I, I, I would find that very... Very interesting again, test yeah. test the, the, the theory because that's something that you can measure. I mean that do your do mm-hmm, you have a policy mm-hmm, of giving do you hundred mm-hmm. percent giving? Or do you not? If you don't, you're in this pile. If you do, you're in this pile. And yeah. and what is your fundraising success over time? Uh particularly in the US that would be easy to measure mm-hmm. money, right? Right. Um, well and and so.
4: I have seen some you know, some research through like the nonprofit research collaborative and the fundraising effectiveness project that do say that prove through what has transpired that if board members play, the fundraising program is more successful. What I wanna know is why, what can psychology tell us, what can sociology tell us about why, if all of us in our group do it in this point in this you know perspective giving? That it helps reach out to others. So it's the why. It's not the because we know, in fact, as I say from some research, that yes, if board members give and blah blah blah, then you raise more. You know, the fundraising program is more successful. I want to know why. And yeah, that's why. sociology, but, but psychology. Also, how
1: much more? How much more? What's what's the delta that right. I'm looking at here? Am I twenty yeah. percent more yeah. successful? Twenty five percent? Or Am I only five percent? Right. Um, right. And, right. and then I can make a decision about how much that 5% is, is worth right. to my organization. Right. I want to keep us going right. on some of these wonderful yeah. topics that, that you uh, that, that you brought up uh, for uh, for the show today. Um, and, and one of them is this notion that I want to kind of expand the the, the question. Um, why doesn't every single non-governmental organization, nonprofit organization, use personal face-to-face solicitation every yeah. single year to support general, general operations? Um, do major gifts work. But I also want to share, um, again, uh, there's an article um, in the Chronicle of Philanthropy just posted yesterday regarding some Mm -hmm. research, and this is some research that came from Network for Good. So not necessarily face-to-face, but the whole notion, and I think it carries forward to the online, of peer-to-peer, people asking people, not nonprofits asking um, uh, for gifts. And what Network for Good, Showed is that generic giving pages, so just a Donate Now uh, page someplace, mm-hmm. uh, year over year, 2013-2014, had declined in online giving by 11%. If you had a mm-hmm. branded giving page, in other words, uh, you weren't using a sort of a standard, in other words, you weren't sending people to Network for Good, you had a yeah, branded yeah, giving yeah, your
4: page. Own, right.
1: uh, year over year, your giving, your online giving was up by 22%. But if the basis of your program, the basis of your program was not, I'm the charity asking you for money, go to my website and give, but it was Ted asking Simone to give to a charity. It was peer-to-peer asking. Your fundraising was up 70% year over year. Yeah. So what are we talking about here? What's the principle?
4: Um, so I've been learning a little bit, and I'm just going to make a guess here, but I've been learning a little bit from, so the the researcher, the director of research at Sargent's New Center for Sustainable Philanthropy is a woman named Jen Shang. Jen is the first PhD in philanthropy and is a philanthropic psychologist. So my, so some of what she talks about is social information, as in people like, Ted Hart and Simon Joyo are giving to this, would you give to this? Or people like you are giving $350 to this, would you consider $350? So I think there's something around the where we identify ourselves, okay? And that's what Jen would talk about, how we identify ourselves as a the, this kind of a person, that kind of person. It's also, I think, the credibility of, you know, Ted asked Simon, and you're credible to me. Where I run into trouble, however, okay, is I say all the time, don't trespass on personal and professional relationships. Identify those who care about the cause. So I tell all my clients, and I write all the time, just because my mommy could give and I can ask her, she's going to give because it's her child asking her. I want to remind my mother I'm the firstborn.
1: She's Mm -hmm.
4: going to do a favor for me because she's my mother. That's not a sustainable giving model. Because as soon as I'm no longer affiliated, she isn't going to give anymore. So I take great exceptions. Right,
1: in general, possibly, possibly unless um, it, it also follows the perspective of, birds of a feather flock together. So I ask you to give to something right. that you might already be uh have an interest in and because then, I'm showing yes. interest in that then yes. then you know so yes, yes. I, I think you're right. Yeah, it's a then mix that's it's fine. a mix.
4: Right. Yeah. Exactly. So, so I'm going so to meet with you personally. My earliest yeah.
1: question well, yeah. b- back to my earliest question do we somewhat fear that the answer is it's very individual
4: Oh, well and I and I do think it's very individual, absolutely, <laughs> and I think you're right. What we want, okay? In my experience and I and you and I watch this all the time. I think many nonprofits are trying to figure out a way to avoid doing actual fundraising, which is Right. Hello. Are you interested in this Cause, would you like to fulfill your aspirations to changing the world by giving through our organization? So what we do yes. is, you know, how, how much you want to bet? There are tons of people on this telephone, on this show right now, and tons of people out in the fields everywhere who are desperately trying to find the next ice bucket challenge.
1: Well, what sure, a sure, bunch sure. Of and, and I refer to. I Pardon refer to, me. I re- well, but I refer to. Those folks and I always try and we try to help them on this show because I refer yes. to them as uh, victims of white glove fundraising syndrome. I don't oh, want I to get like my that. hands dirty and I don't want to exactly. get too close to it. So if I exactly. can, uh, if I can put a button on a website and people will just yes. give lots of money, or if I can, right. send, you know, tweet something, then people will give a lot of money as opposed to. What I think, and and at some point, you know, the the Center for Sustainable Philanthropy is going to tell us if this is true or not. But we we only have many decades of of empirical information to tell us that people meeting people and talking to people and inspiring inspiring people that right. they know to do good works is what works. Right. It's it's like you
4: always say, the internet, e philanthropy, all this stuff is a tool. Tool. It is not. Right. The
1: answer, Right. So to speak. It's part of it's an overall t- strategy. I think you make a mistake right. by not right. having the Internet exactly. as part of your overall strategy right. because that goes to donors giving in a way that they want to give. It's not because right. it is doing the fundraising for you. Exactly. It is because exactly. you have successfully made the case. You have successfully made right. the connection. Precisely. You have built a relationship that draws right. them to want to give, and now the tool – allows them to give in a convenient and efficient and effective way.
4: Right. You know the and other it didn't thing that's
1: really – It didn't do right. the fundraising.
4: Exactly. And the thing, one of the things that really worries me is the distinction between I paid the gift I decided to make online or uh-huh. I learned about you online and was solicited online. So when we keep talking about how more and more people are giving online, it's like, excuse me? You mean they're paying their gift online, but they're actually responding to the solicitation you made to me over dinner. Okay, I just happened to pay it online. Or the direct mail letter you sent me, but I just happened to pay it online. And those are two vastly different things.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, you know, this research talking about peer to peer solicitation, whether you're responding to an email that I sent or I saw you in an event or or where right. the interaction was and then you gave the, 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 the essence here and that 70 percent um, growth is being tracked by the fact that someone other than the charity is making the ask um, and the donor is responding to that ask. And I think that's. You know, from the earliest days of e-philanthropy, that is what I have said and and others have said about e-philanthropy is that this is, and one of my books is is entitled, People to People Fundraising. This is about people asking people, people connecting to people, and these are tools that allow them to connect. And that's, you know, one of the things I I point out when I'm talking about, um, you know, online fundraising is I start off by just asking people, you know, what is the common element? Of every single person on Facebook, <laughs> every single person on Twitter, every single person on LinkedIn. We're talking about billions of people just in those sites alone. Right. What is the one thing that is the same of all of those people, regardless of where they are on the planet? And the one thing that is the same is that they desire to connect. Because yes. there is nothing that requires you to be on Facebook. You can live your life and 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 hopefully be just as happy and successful uh if uh if you uh if you uh do not have facebook do not have linkedin do not have twitter but in utilizing these tools and these services you are connecting to vastly larger number of people yep. and it's not yep. taking the place of a relationship again it's a tool enhancing that relationship which is why people do it people go yeah. to these places because they As human beings, we innately desire to connect, and these tools are not replacing a relationship. They're not getting in the way of a relationship. They are enhancing a relationship, which is why we voluntarily do this.
4: And as long as fundraisers remember all that, that's good. And as long as they see the, yeah, you know, they distinguish between why, how, you know, tools versus. I don't know, raison d'etre or something, then it's fine. But we get, as you say, the white gloved approach of, honestly, I really don't want to do this. So, sure, I'll forward the email and then I won't have to do anything.
1: Well, and And that, that, you know, so so that the white glove syndrome sort of sneaks in. It's, you know, sort of like a virus that, you know, wow, this stuff works. So maybe that is why it works. So, if I just send yeah. out more emails, or if I do right. more of that <laughs> that that is what works uh, belying be what we know to be true, and again, you know right. studies will be done, and studies have been done. but what we what we knew to be true and knew to be true from the earliest um early dawn of e philanthropy is that we knew that this was a human engagement that was enhanced by the internet. It was not the internet gobbling up human experience.
4: Right, right. Yep, yep. Indeed, indeed. Indeed, indeed. So one thing that's kind of interesting to take a look at, Ken Burnett, the glorious Ken Burnett um, of the UK, wrote Relationship Fundraising, and now his new book, Storytelling. He has a... Five-part series, where and the one of them was just published today, the fourth part, about maybe that about how bad fundraising is now, and that Mm -hmm. maybe we made a mistake with fundraising and marketing. Now I haven't read it yet; it just came in. But Mm -hmm. talk about you know somebody big in our field who is asking us to think about things, it's a real it's a real shocker. So I would recommend that to people on the listening in, that that's something that we should all be reading and uh, hit the whole series, all five parts, and then really talking about it.
1: Cause he's, well, I think, you know, I think
4: we should always relationship challenge
1: ourselves. Yeah, I think we should always challenge ourselves uh, yeah. as to, and I think this is what's really Terrific about this Center for Sustainable Philanthropy is we should challenge ourselves to say why, um, yes. and I think and I think in the why the 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 guiding principle I hope somewhere in the Center for Sustainable Philanthropy um, is an understanding that it is a human activity that we are oh, looking yeah. to understand better but it is yeah. not an activity in and of itself and in, uh, in other words philanthropy doesn't just exist it beco- it comes yeah. into existence through the human experience um right. and understanding and, yeah. what sustains that what what is the what is the air that philanthropy breathes what is the water that philanthropy lives on and lives in um, i think those right. are the interesting the interesting yep. questions about how do we sustain all that, that i'm so excited right. and certainly having you yep. and some of the other folks that i know very well Involved tells mm-hmm. me um, yeah. a, uh, yeah. a very uh, interesting – so uh, only four minutes left, okay? But I do, okay. do want you uh, to uh, to sort of take into the Simone Joyeux mm-hmm. world of uh, uh, interesting thoughts on philanthropy. Martin Luther King's statement that philanthropy is commendable, but it must mm-hmm. not cause the philanthropist – to overlook the circumstances of economic injustice that make philanthropy necessary. Yes.
4: So one of my favorite all-time books is a book called Robin Hood Was Right. I'm walking over to get the title of it. Robin Hood Was Right, Um, a guide to giving your money for social change. So it's about social change. Most philanthropy is compensating for things that aren't working. So we could use the the concept of homelessness or hunger very quickly. Mm-hmm. So thank heavens mm-hmm. we have charities that are feeding the hungry and housing the homeless. Right. And then we have charities who are helping them, you know, get jobs and training, et cetera. But ultimately there has to be a living wage or else they still will be hungry and potentially homeless. Right. And ultimately... Right. Right. We have to go to the head of the river and figure out why there isn't a living wage and why, after I trained you to fish, there's no place on the river for you to fish from because it's owned by all the big corporations or all the big fisher people or whatever. So I really like Martin Luther King's statement where he's saying, in essence, we can't just survive with Band-Aids. We have to make the systems change that is causing the problems. And that's social change philanthropy. That's social justice. And a lot of people don't want to hear about that, and they don't want to talk about it.
1: Well, so but I thankfully sure some people do. Talk about it. You know, yeah. So, I, but thankfully some people do. I mean, the, yeah. the nice, the yes. the wonderful thing about philanthropy is, again, as I as I've said so many times, you know, it, it is a team sport that is played by humans. Um, and yes. being a sport, some people are soccer people and some people are baseball people. Right, and people exactly. Football
4: people. exactly. And
1: so, you know, as long as you're engaged in the sport and you're you're keeping your, your philanthropic acumen healthy, you know, you're working out at the philanthropy gym, um, then it can take on lots of different flavors. And it needs to because it's a very yes. big world with a lot of different needs. Now, exactly. I've only got a minute and a half left, so I need to yes. say goodbye. And it's terribly hard mm-hmm. and you need to come back. Because it's great stuff. Please tell please tell my listeners how they can reach you.
4: Oh, you can reach me through my website, which is www.dot and just my name, Simonjoyaux.dot.com. So that's S-I-M-O-N-E-J-O-Y-A-U-X. And aren't we all fortunate to love philanthropy so much and to be able to participate in all kinds of different ways?
1: Absolutely, and I know that our producer, Diane uh, Peach, is listening in today, and so I'm asking her to get you back on the show as soon as we can because I enjoy these conversations so much, and you bring us so many things to think about. Simone, it is spring, and therefore Simone is here on The Nonprofit Coach. Thank you so much, and everyone, we will see you next week here on The Nonprofit Coach.
4: Thank you, Ted. Thanks, everybody. Bye. You've been listening
1: Bye. to the Nonprofit Coach
0: Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcasts at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Coach.